Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the Bernie Care podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on September 15th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, the health law professoriates equivalent to the Apple iPhone X. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week on Twill, we have a very special treat as we Welcome R. Walter Charo, the Walt Warren P. Knowles Professor of Law and Bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She's an elected member of the World Technology Network, uh, the Wisconsin Academy of Science, Arts, and Letters. And in 2006, she was elected to membership in the National Academies Institute of Medicine, now known as the National Academy of Medicine. In 2013, she was awarded the Adam Yamalonsky Medal for her service to the IOM. She served on President Obama's transition team, where she was a member of the HHS Review, looking at NIH, FDA, bioethics, stem cell policy, and women's reproductive health. She was on leave from Wisconsin from 2009 to 11 to serve as a senior policy advisor on emerging technology issues at the FDA. When in Wisconsin, or in the many other places, she uh, uh, she pops up to teach the odd course. This is a CV, folks, you just couldn't believe. It's so amazing. Uh, she teaches public health law, bioethics, biotechnology law, food and drug law, reproductive rights, stem cell policy, torts, and legislative drafting. You probably know her as one of the country's best known and most respected health law scholars, and we've been looking forward for a while to having you on the show. Where I'd like to start, Alter, is with a couple of pieces that you've written on gene editing and related topics. And the background, obviously, here is the breakthrough gene editing technique, uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, we've discussed this on Twill a couple of times, often with the great help of Hank Greeley or, or Glenn Cohen. But if you could just give us a, a very quick summary of the of the basic technology in order to bring everyone up to speed to to understand this discussion. Sure, happy to. Genetic engineering for many years was a very inefficient and imprecise process. It was almost like shooting a pellet gun at something and hoping the pellet got into the right part of the genome and that it would integrate properly. Uh, and in more recent years, something called gene editing was developed. The first time it was, it was the first version of it was zinc finger nucleases. CRISPR-Cas9 is just the most uh, recent and by far the most powerful. Instead of shooting a pellet gun, you can actually guide your pellet to exactly the place you want to put it and insert the genetic sequence you want, or you can delete a sequence that's already there and allow the uh, gene to, the remaining part of the gene to simply repair itself. So it gives us speed and precision, and it's very easy to do. So laboratories all over the country have already incorporated it into standard methodology. You wrote a, uh, a rather whimsical piece, if I may, with our friend Hank Greeley called CRISPR Critters and CRISPR Crack. I, the deviousness of putting that title together, I can only imagine. You examine various sort of less controversial uses for the technology, even using a term I particularly like to describe the technology biohacking. Um, the piece summarizes the current regulatory framework and sort of the, the agency overlaps and gaps. But the other sort of piece that I picked up from, from the discussion in the paper was that as ethicists, you didn't seem to get particularly heated by these developments. Developments, you know, that uh, when we see them in the popular press, um, always have some reference to designer babies or some other uh, uh, horror. Is that, is that a 
fair uh, uh, summary of, uh, of your thoughts? I think that is fair. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 and gene editing in general has had most of its public discussion focused on the least likely application, which is to edit embryos or sperm or eggs and to so-called design our babies. Uh, there's very little need to do that given the number of other technologies we can use if we want to avoid giving birth to a child with profound difficulties. Uh, and it also is by far the most complicated, difficult, and uh, so far unpredictable kind of application. Much more usual for humans would be to try and prevent or treat diseases. And that is already in clinical trial for things like trying to treat certain cancers uh, and soon sickle cell. But beyond human applications, people tended to forget that the biggest world of application is in things like agriculture, where it would be possible now to do much more precise and sophisticated genetic engineering of crops so that you don't need to put as much pesticide down, or where you could engineer animals so that their waste didn't pollute rivers and streams as much. Um, and then more potentially uh, controversially, you could use a CRISPR and genetic engineering for things that you might view as frivolous. We've already seen genetic engineering used, for example, to make fish glow, so-called, literally called glow fish. Uh, and you could imagine CRISPR making that easier to do with a wider variety of animals so that now as a matter of artwork or pure aesthetics, you'd be looking at making changes. And uh, just in the last week or so since this recording was made, uh, we've already seen breakthroughs in making flowers that can have their petals change color. So there are a lot of applications, some in terms of agribusiness that would be very profitable, others that might capture the public's imagination in a whimsical fashion that are likely to be much more widespread than the um, human applications, which will take time to test in clinical trials and far more useful and, uh, and uh, frequent than anything having to do with designer babies. So do the issues that you raise in your later piece in the New England Journal, um, the hype of media stories? stories about sort of persons who have literally, you know, got to the stage of therapeutic desperation. And then, of course, the medical tourism enabling regulatory arbitrage, I guess, a, a legal hack. Um, do you see those as sort of transitional uh, issues uh, before we, we sort of calm down and just uh, allow uh, gene editing to sort of fit into or find its place in, in our sort of technological options? I hope that's what happens. But here's the experience we've had with another technology that had a lot of public attention about a decade ago, and that's stem cell technology. So we had lots of public debates over some of the more uh, politically controversial sources for stem cells, specifically embryos. And then we moved on to other sources that were less controversial, like the regular cells of your body, so-called somatic cells. Um, and <clears throat> because there had been so much public discussion, it was possible for pop-up so-called clinics to start advertising things that they claimed were therapeutic that really weren't. And the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, had jurisdiction here, but there's a variety of reasons, we can talk later if you like, that made it difficult to exercise that jurisdiction. And we had a long period of time where, yes, desperate patients were being sucked in by these charlatans and spending tens of thousands of dollars for things like having cells that were taken from their bone marrow and then just re-injected back into their knee or their back 
some of whom had terrible experiences, had bone growing out of their eyes, literally. Um, so we've seen this pattern, and it's not just within the U.S., it's across borders, where people would move to other countries where the regulation was looser to try to seek out a, a new technology. So here's the concern. If gene editing gets this kind of public discussion that uh, gets everybody very excited and also has a very controversial aspect here, the designer baby, that keeps it in the press, it's very easy for charlatans, again, to start claiming that they can do things that, in fact, they cannot do. And for the ordinary person who, let's say, goes on uh, their browser and types in stem cell therapy or now gene editing therapy, they tend to come up with a mix of links, some of which are real, like a clinical trial, uh, and others which are for completely distant kinds of applications, like facial creams that purport to have you know, stem cells, and it turns out it's plant stem cells, and then something that's really potentially dangerous, like one of these fraudulent clinics. And it's very hard for the unschooled person to distinguish all of these links one from the other. I do think that is a terrific problem for us to be focusing on, because I think that this question of intermediary responsibility is really coming to a boil on a number of fronts. I'm wondering, do you think that the the fact that people can find these horrific clinics, and I listened to this amazing documentary about a Florida stem cell clinic for the blind, which just yes. turned my stomach. Yes. Is, is there any way that maybe regulators can get into or can try to pressure intermediaries or regulate intermediaries to uh, police these really terrible uh, leads that they're, they're giving people? Well, the, the regulatory agencies are not really in a position to do that, but others are. I mean, where is that potential kind of discipline coming from? We have state medical societies in every state of the U.S., but they have been really pathetically inactive in trying to crack down on some of these so-called clinics. We also have, from my perspective, a surprising lack of litigation. You've got the you've got some people who've been terribly injured and other people who've simply been flim-flammed. And from my perspective, I want to know where is the tort bar? Where is the plaintiff's bar bringing suit to uh, try to get damages that would ultimately shut these places down? And um, behind that is who are the medical malpractice liability insurers that are giving coverage to these clinics and to these doctors? Um, because I can't believe these companies appreciate the potential liability exposure that is present here. So uh, the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine have come together to create a regenerative medicine forum. And it brings together industry, patient groups, regulators, academics. Uh, I co-chair that with Jay Siegel from Johnson & Johnson. And part of the goal of that forum was to highlight these problems and start creating some pressure from all of these various stakeholders on the various medical societies to inform the tort bar about the possibilities here, to alert insurers to their risks, and see if we can bring to bear these other kinds of regulatory uh, opportunities in addition to the federal government, where the federal regulators have a fairly difficult task of meeting the burden that's placed on them before they can go in and enforce against any particular doctor or clinic. I guess at least part of the answer to your question, the torts part anyway, is that when you're looking at snake oil salespersons, they tend not to have any insurance at all. 
which is going to take uh, some of these out. And then the the sheer costs involved in tracking them down and uh, identifying them and so on seems to be something that an agency such as FTC is going to be uh, better at doing. That's right. And in fact, um, there were questions asked about why the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has not been more active in this area. And the answer that came back uh, was that they prioritize based upon the sheer number of people who are affected as well as on the kind of public profile of a problem. And as horrific as some of these examples have been, in terms of the sheer number of people, it, it is dwarfed by things like fraudulent, let's say, weight loss you know, uh, drugs. So there is a, there's a kind of problem of just resource management at the level of the government. But the other thing that happens is that um, in many cases, people are signing forms that purport to essentially give away their right to complain. They sign all kinds of so-called assumption of risk uh, uh, clauses in these documents that they get. So they don't even realize that they actually do have a legitimate basis for a complaint. Uh, and that's been exacerbated by a number of states now who that have been looking at legislation on so-called right to try, which is designed to remove the FDA from the role of regulator and uh, allow people to more easily access unapproved experimental drugs uh, directly from drug companies if the company is willing to give it. And this kind of libertarian message has also filtered down into the stem cell world, where there's been a lot of pressure to get the FDA out of the business of trying to regulate this field. Uh, and the 21st Century Cures Act, it has some provisions along those lines. So we've got a lot of different kinds of political forces and cultural forces that have made it easy for these clinics to exist. And, and my concern, as expressed in the New England Journal piece, was that uh, gene editing might go through a similar kind of, of interregnum of uh, fraudulent clinics that are underregulated because of these kind of uh, ways to discourage patients from pursuing their options or ways to make it difficult for the government to pursue enforcement. We're getting to see the first gene therapy treatments uh, come through FDA approval. Um, there's the, is it Kimria or something? Yes. Uh, uh, from Novartis that was just announced. And we know there are a whole bunch more of those coming. The legal nature of a gene therapy treatment, I think I'm okay with as far as it, it being classified as a drug. Where exactly now is gene editing and where maybe gene editing be in the near future as far as the the correct regulatory system that would be applicable? Well, it's going to depend upon the specifics of exactly what form of gene therapy you're doing. So if, for example, you were to take cells out of a person's body and then somehow engineer them in a laboratory and then reinsert those cells back in the person's body, perhaps in a different place in their body, so that they can somehow correct a problem, then you are clearly in the area of what we would call a biological drug. And these manipulated cells are, are treated, they're, they're regulated the same way we would regulate drugs, um, even though it's a biologic kind of substance. Now, gene editing does make it a little bit more complicated because in some cases, what you might be doing is having uh, some kind of substance that simply deletes 
part of the genome as opposed to adding something in. And so then the question is, are we talking about kind of genetic scissors, which is more like a device rather than a drug? Uh, if it's a device, there are many circumstances under which it's regulated in a way that's less rigorous in terms of pre-market testing and levels of evidence that have to be given. Um, there's also uh, the possibility that this is going to wind up being combined with uh, stem cells where you take out tissue, create stem cells, edit the stem cells, then grow new tissue from that and replace that. So now we're combining what might be a drug with what be tissue transplantation. So it's going to be very specific to each variation of gene therapy, which particular regulatory path it will follow. And some of that has yet to be worked out. I was wondering if we could next move on to uh, another recent area, uh, your expertise, where you've been writing um, with respect to uh, the teen pregnancy prevention program that was uh, discontinued by the Trump administration. And I was wondering if you could give some background on this program and some of the administration's uh, rationales for discontinuing it. The teen pregnancy program has been around for a number of years. It had bipartisan support. And the idea is to find evidence-based uh, programs that have been proven to reduce a number of things. First, to reduce the incidence of very early onset of sexual activity. So can we delay first sexual activity from early teens to late teens to adulthood? Um, second, to reduce the uh, kind of health problems that can come with early sexual initiation, such as a uh, pattern of uh, unintended pregnancies because of inexperience with contraception or difficulty obtaining contraception, higher rates of sexually transmitted diseases because of a failure to use protective measures like condoms. So we've got 80, 90 different kinds of programs around the country, each one kind of targeted in a different way. Some are targeted at certain ethnic groups or language groups or economic groups and trying to tailor them to the particular ways in which you can most effectively reach those people and help them to change their behavior in a way that avoids unintended pregnancy during their teen years. It's very important we do that because teenage pregnancy is incredibly uh, tightly associated with lifelong poverty and with, in fact, poverty for the children who are born of these teen mothers because they are raised in households where, again, you have the same problem of, um, you know, lack of money, uh, poor housing, poor nutrition, etc. Now, the Trump administration uh, did not give a justification for why it was going to simply discontinue the funding of programs that were already in progress, including many of them that had had two sequential assessments on the effect they've had in their local area on pregnancy rates or STD rates and had been confirmed to be showing real positive results. Uh, in general, we see this kind of attack on the funding for anything having to do with pregnancy and, and contraception being grounded in an ideological position, which is that either the government should not be in any way uh, assisting people in avoiding the consequences of sexuality, that it, or for some people, the perception that if you help people avoid pregnancy, it will only encourage them to have sexual activity. And prior to marriage, this is discouraged by many different religious and cultural groups. So it's a mix. 
Um, and it also kind of goes hand in hand with the attacks on Planned Parenthood and the efforts to defund Planned Parenthood that have been flowing through both the state and federal legislatures. Uh, it's, it's, I find, a very regrettable development. And, you know, it fits a pattern, doesn't it? Because there are several cases uh, in the courts now where the Trump administration has just decided to either roll back or to delay the implementation of an Obama-era rule. And what astonishes me in in some of these instances, they just fail admin law 101. I mean, there was this one case, I think, where they were overturned on the delay of the revision to the royalty mining rates uh, in, in the Interior Department. And I'm wondering if this might fall to a similar type of objection, if they're just not willing to do any sort of ration, give any sort of rationale, it just seems uh, arbitrary and capricious. You know, of course, um, you know, anybody who's listening here who knows ad law knows that this is going to depend to some extent on the basis on which the program started. Uh, but to the extent that we're talking about grant programs with contracts, the I think one possible remedy might be to deal with uh, an assertion of a breach of contract. But a lot of these grants are written with you know wiggle language that the federal government has always had, so that they can cancel programs for economic necessity and exigency. And it might be that that might I, I don't know, but that might be one way in which they can uh, successfully cancel the funding. Uh, without having any kind of penalty. You know, the sad thing is that uh, a lot of these measures, including the ones you mentioned, are measures that are actually undermining the stated goals of the administration itself. So, for example, one of the stated goals is to discourage or even eliminate abortion. And yet the single best way to reduce the number of abortions is to reduce the number of unintended pregnancies. And the way to reduce the number of unintended pregnancies is to uh, increase access and information related to contraception. But instead, you're seeing now a pullback on school nurse programs, uh, as well as limits on what school nurses can say or do with regard to provision of contraception. The attacks on the Planned Parenthood clinics uh, are directly translating into lack of access to contraceptive services uh, in, a, in a variety of places. The, the person running for attorney general in the state of Alabama uh, just recently said that uh, he doesn't believe that Alabama is actually uh, subject to federal law or federal case law from the Supreme Court. And his goal is to actually shut down every one of these facilities uh, and drive them into extinction. So we're, we're seeing at both the federal and state level, a kind of concerted attack on the means by which you'd accomplish the very goals you say are your own goals, which is to have uh, a, a more careful and responsible way in which to engage in sex and start families. And let's not forget the uh, preventative health care services uh, aspects of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which have been under attack since Hobby Lobby and which the new administration apparently is just going to put in a very broad moral objection clause, which essentially gives any employer um, a get out of jail free card. Yes. And again, talking about the excessive cost of our healthcare so-called system, and yet at the same time, removing anything that will bind the insurers or the employers to provision of the very preventive services that would in fact lower the costs of the healthcare system. So again, yes, a kind of ideology trumping evidence and trumping logic 
no pun intended here, but uh, is a pattern that we're now seeing in this administration. We're also seeing states coming up to the plate and taking a swing on some of this stuff. Uh, New York, I think, has essentially taken the preventative health care uh, uh, measures from the ACA and encoded it as part of the New York insurance law, for example. Do you see more and more state activity uh, in this regard, in, in the sort of the absence of federal leadership or, or federal leadership uh, going in sometimes bizarre directions? Well, yes, but only in a very spotty fashion. I mean, what you need is a state that is controlled at the executive and legislative levels by people people who actually want to do things like reduce unintended pregnancy or uh, assist people in finding preventive care. So we are seeing initiatives out of places like California. In this, in that case, actually, it's resistance to some of the immigration-related uh, uh, policies coming out of the federal government now. Uh, so we can expect that in states like California or like New York or like Maryland, you might find these kinds of approaches. And with regard to insurance, at least there is, like in New York, an opportunity to to use the state insurance law, which can set minimum standards for coverage for any company that offers a policy in that state. But if you look around the United States, you will see that, uh, I don't remember the number now, but I think it's about half or more than half of the states now uh, are under unitary party control, governor and legislature. And often their, their Supreme Courts are also now uh, dominated by people who were appointed by the same party that's now in executive and legislative domination. And in those states, you absolutely are not going to have any pushback. If anything, those states are now in a position to go one step further than the federal government. Federal government can re eliminate funding for, let's say, research that uses fetal tissue. This has been under discussion now in the Congress. But at the state level, we're seeing patterns in places like Indiana uh, and other states to simply criminalize the research that uses such tissue, regardless of whether it actually has any effect on the number of abortions. So I think we're going to see uh, an increasing kind of dichotomy between states that use their power to resist the federal government and states that use their power to go one better than the federal government and be even more oppressive. I wanted to ask about the article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that you published in August uh, on alternative science and human reproduction, just to sort of continue this theme, uh, because you're talking about some of the uh, new Trump administration officials who seem to be very intent on blurring the line between contraception and abortifacients. And do you think this sort of work is going to be the type of work that could potentially stand up in court as a rationale for agency action? Or do you think it's just so far out there that this is not going to be called or recognized as either part of the scientific or expertise or policy authority of the relevant agencies? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the federal courts have already upheld this kind of anti-science redefining of basic biological processes. And they they did it in the Hobby Lobby case. And that was the U.S. Supreme Court, which allowed the owners of this business to simply redefine for their own purposes ordinary birth control as a form of abortion. And then building off of that, say, and we have a religious objection to abortion, and therefore we should not be obligated to provide these kinds of birth control pills to, uh, or not to provide, that is, we should not be obligated to either ensure that our insurance coverage includes these birth control pills, nor, and this was also interesting, nor should we be required to simply pay the sum of money uh, into the public pocket that would be used to then independently give these employees the opportunity to purchase coverage that includes birth control pills. Um, and it was a rather under-discussed aspect of the Hobby Lobby opinion was the way in which the court bowed not only in the direction of letting people have an un unfettered uh, discretion on stating the 
nature of their moral obligations and the degree to which it did or did not meet with kind of doctrinal rules of their religion, but also allowed them to redefine scientific terminology and to uh, take a position that is uh, not shared by the vast majority of physicians and scientists in the United States and is, is different from the way in which these words and these concepts are used in ordinary medicine today. Uh, so the redefining of reality has been going on for a little while now. And it's it's rather frightening because it means that we lose control even over the nature of evidence or the nature of the basic, the basic uh, methodologies by which you come to a conclusion about what is causal and not, what is proven and not. Uh, so it's scientific method as well as scientific facts that are now under attack. As we poke our head above the parapet occasionally, I think we look in, in horror um, over at our friends in environmental law and policy. Um, what's going on there and the ignorance of science and any kind of evidence base uh, you know even even talking about uh, climate change given the the weather that our friends in Florida and Texas have experienced recently. How bad do you think this can get for health law? Clearly, a lot of health policy over the last few decades has been evidence-based. Medicine itself has, is changing or has been trying to change from a system loosely based around heuristics and a physician culture to um, more of an evidence-based objective form of practice. That presumably is not going to sit well uh, with the new leadership, for example, of HHS. Yeah, the, um, the comparison to what's going on in the environmental field is well taken. And not only because there are parallels, but because, of course, a healthy environment is crucial for human health as well as for environmental health. Uh, and what we've seen in that area has been a few things, and you've alluded to a few, I think. Uh, one has been the sequential dismissal of the experts on several, in fact, more than several of the expert advisory panels that are used by the EPA, the Department of Interior, and others. Uh, the second has been the appointment of people with no scientific expertise to actually lead key aspects of these agencies, including somebody from Congress who is now being appointed to be the chief scientist for one of these departments and has no science background, uh, but operates entirely out of ideology. So we're removing the expertise that you would need if you even were interested in evidence-based decision-making. Uh, also has failed to appoint a presidential uh, science advisor or to repopulate the Office of Science Technology Policy at the White House with experts, because again, their input and their ability to coordinate among agencies has not value. Um, and then with that comes the ability to do things like say, well, okay, uh, we have long had this study going on about the health effects of a certain kind of mining that goes on in West Virginia and nearby areas in which whole tops of mountains are simply chopped off. And this study was almost at its completion uh, under a contract between the federal government and the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and suddenly the administration announces that we don't want the study anymore. Uh, and we're going to stop that contract a little bit like the teen pregnancy uh, example, where simply things that are ongoing are stopped, the funding is removed. Uh, and we're hoping that at least that one case, that that study will be completed by the academies at their own expense. But uh, what will happen to future studies, we can guess, is that they'll never be started, let alone finished. Uh, and it means we'll have an evidence-free zone. 
Uh, we're also watching to see whether or not key personnel are being manipulated. There's one whistleblower from the Department of Interior who identified a pattern of moving experts out of the positions they were in and into completely inappropriate positions. You take a, an environmental scientist and you put him in an accounting office. Uh, and that there are dozens and dozens of senior experts that are being manipulated this way into new positions uh, for which there is no purpose, you know, for their expertise in order to remove them from the area where they can have an effect. Um, so, and that, by the way, is now uh, the subject of an internal investigation by the uh, Inspector General at the Interior Department. One can only hope the IG is going to be independent from the Secretary there. Uh, so this is now a kind of government-wide pattern. It will certainly be an effect on health po- on health policy, because if you don't have data and you're not willing to let anybody develop data, you can't set up a policy that is evidence-based, and you also can't give outsiders the tools they need to debate with the government the policy that ultimately is chosen. You know, for years, the CDC has been unable to collect data on uh, many aspects of gun violence because uh, gun uh, proponents of unfettered access to guns have prevented the data from being collected, and that means outside groups can't actually have the information they need in order to debate bait gun control properly. So this is this is a long-standing tactic. It's just that now it, the tactic is being used on steroids. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Sharif for joining us. Uh, Alta, what a great treat. Thank you for making time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank is at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>